I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1999 Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from a cursed music shop in Italy. Here in 2022, I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today, to, uh, sorry, with us again. The pride of Canada, Norm Wilner. Thank you so much, Norm, for coming back to talk this Canadian masterpiece. Swept the Genie Awards in uh, it did it did in 1999 or I guess 2000 when they yeah. when they give those out. Um, beat my favorite movie last night. It did. Um, you know, another Don McKellar. I was going to say McKellar versus McKellar. What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, this is the this is the less good McKellar of the year, I think. But I would agree. I'm amazed he did this, if I'm being completely honest. It's a little outside his. Well, there's only I I think there's only three um, Canadian screenwriters. It's McKellar, Adam McGoyan and Cronenberg. And it's not really an McGoyan or a Cronenberg joint. But yeah, yeah. Maybe not in 99. (laughs) Yes. 17 year old Sarah Polly was really, you know, jumping off the set of go to do this. But it's true. This I, is Patricia Rosimo erasure, and I will not stand for it. Oh, she was off making sure. Mansfield Park, so that's okay. Which we talked about. Which we did. Which we, we did. did. I, I mean, this. So, I, I reached out to you, Norma, about this movie, and I was like, "Listen, it's Canadian. You, being the pride of Canada, felt it felt important to have a Canadian to talk about this film because it was a big deal." For them to make this movie, um, it was it was an expensive movie. I mean, one of the biggest budgets for a Canadian film up until that time, up until that yeah, point. Yeah. Um, 
I remember it being a big deal at TIFF, um, where Norm and I just crossed paths uh, last week. Um, but like this movie, I mean, Kenny and I have talked about this movie. I, I honestly can't believe it won best score, if I'm being honest. It's a good score. It's not a bad score. But I think there's two other scores that were nominated that are superior to this one that I'm a little surprised didn't beat it. But I guess it's got a violin in the title, so stupid academy members were like well i mean violin violin what are the pretty. two what are the two though i mean i would I, I on despite the film itself american beauty score is great and iconic and i think that uh that ripley's score is also beautiful um you know i mean it's a, a, a as a, as much as we detest american beauty these days yeah uh Given its given given what its scope uh of of success in the moment and and how you know integral that score was to that movie it really is a shock that that didn't win best score it's it's i mean listen thomas newman's been nominated a bunch of times and hasn't won i think he's he's in the double digits now if i'm not mistaken in terms of still, nominations still yeah, hasn't still won. Is, still oh, hasn't won wow. people thought he was going to win for 1917 when 1917 was thought to be perhaps you know was going to sweep uh, the but, juggernaut that it was for about a month yeah for about a month I mean, Thomas Newman's score for American Beauty in particular feels like he, like the template for him moving forward too, right? Like that that score has been a temp score for other movies that, he, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's just, it, there's a part of me that's like, I agree with you 100%, Kenny. American Beauty being what it is now, whatever, but like it won a lot of Oscars. It felt like that would have been the one to win score, and then this wins, which is just a little odd to me because I just can't imagine a lot of Academy members watch this. Movie. I, I mean, not to talk about American Beauty because I'm happy. I'm happy to talk about this red violin, a far spirit movie in American Beauty. But uh, but <laughs> just to, to just to talk about American Beauty for 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 yeah, one moment. Sure. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The score is the best part of that movie. Probably uh, the and score, the cinematography. It's beautiful. The score, the cinematography. And and Annette Benning, which yeah. I think those actually are the three things I think we felt those like three, yeah. aged well when we did our rewatch. Um, and Annette Benning's fantastic, but her characters, you know, treated terribly. Yeah, a monster. And um, and the cinematography is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, th- those are the three things that I think still hold up I to agree. this day, right? I agree. Yeah, and my sense, at least in the moment, was when I remember watching that '99, uh, a prestige movie that had such an atypical score that still didn't feel like it was, you know, the dust brothers doing the fucking fight club where it was trying to, you know, you know, kind of throw in your face that we are not a typical film. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought, you know, look, I I think that really is an important score, but uh, you know, it doesn't, it pales in comparison to the red violin. Everyone knows that. Well, but (laughs) the thing, I mean, I refuse to believe that, <clears throat> that many Academy members watch this movie. I just, I, I, I quite simply refuse. I, I, we all know that the Academy more times than not just kind of checks boxes. Um, or if a movie is a phenomenon, uh, you know, Kenny and I've talked about this a lot. It's narrative based in, in so many ways, right? Which is that, you know, it depends on the feeling in the industry at that moment when they're doing their final ballots. And I'm just like, the red violin you guys watched the red violin and decided that this was the maybe it was just a numbers game maybe perhaps you know american beauty and ripley split the vote and red violin kind of eked through 
again, it sounds like I'm shitting on the score and I'm not. It's a beautiful score. It's just, and it, I think that the um, the composer turned it into an actual um, uh, Broadway musical opera or something. Or something. Symphony, yeah. something like that. So like, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, to dispute it's, it's, uh, it's quality. I'm just a little surprised. That's all. It's just, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird one. Yeah. I think ultimately they all got the screener and they looked at it and saw violin on their ballot. And then I, I do think it is as simple as that. the same way that for years, the foreign language film always went to the most optimistic title, you know, um, journey of hope beating the nasty girl literally is my example for that. <laughs> But The Nasty Girl is brilliant and Journey of Hope is just sort of not. Uh, But if you don't see the movies and you're just looking for inspiration, it's like, well, the Red Violin must be about the violin. Obviously, the music is an integral part. The American Beauty will do fine. It'll win some other stuff. And they just went for it, I think. I mean, again, you can't explain the Academy's decisions three quarters of the time anyway. But I do suspect that I'm pretty sure there was a CD of the score that was sent out along. I'm sure there was. That must have played with it. That must have worked. So I'm sure they just listened to it or saw Pulitzer prize winner, John Corleano on the, on the sleeve that would have done it. And I'm sure that like whoever it was that had American distribution of this film was like, this is our, we can, we have a shot at this Oscar. Let me tell you what I think. Let me tell you what I think happened. This is 1999. Indeed. Most Academy members have cars. Oh, I thought you were going to say dementia, but go on. Have dementia, <laughs> have cars with this new device that replaced their tape player. They now have a CD player. They don't have any CDs, though. They don't they don't go to the CD shop. They get this CD in the mail. Hmm, I'll put it on in my car and they listen to it over and over. And I'll tell you why I think this is true. Okay. Because my parents around this time bought a, it was called a Millennia. Have you ever heard that of that car? It was called yeah. a, I think it was a Mitsubishi Millennia or Sir. It sure. was a, it was an Acura or something, something like that. I can't remember. Okay, but it was it was like their like their like little fancyish car, and it came with a CD player and a CD that had red like violin score. It wasn't a red violin score. It had 10 like adult contemporary songs on it that we just wore the fuck out, right? Because it was the only CD in the car. It was like, oh, my God, check this out. Here's a CD. So I truly believe that this is the only CD that 75% of people had in their car and they put it on ad nauseum. I, I don't believe that people truly I don't believe that people thought Red Violin must be about music. Let's give it best score. I I think people take score more seriously than that. I think they consider themselves to be more, you know, uh, more intelligent when it comes to the way score meshes with a film. I think if you look through the history of best score, this is a wild outlier in terms of a random ass movie winning best score. Uh, In general, it goes to a really great score for a really memorable film. So I I just think this is I really think if you went back and looked at the story, I think the CD uh, sampler is probably the the genius move they made. I I mean, listen, that certainly is possible. I I just think that I don't know that there are below the line nominations that tend to be more indicative of 
of a of a more discerning guild. I think that you know editing has often been sort of one that's that's connected with best picture sometimes. Yeah. Um, but but a lot of them do get clumped together in your sweep type situations. That's I agree and with I, that. I, but yeah, so I, I feel like this is an outlier in the sense that it that American Beauty didn't do that. They a lot of them get lumped <clears throat> together in a sweep or a lot of the, or sometimes not a lot of the time, sometimes scores transcend the movie. It happens sure, every once in a sure, while, sure. like even. You know, for lack social of a better reason, being an example of social, that. I mean, the, the Trent Reznor ones always seem to, for lack of a better recent example, the Joker score seemed to kind of transcend that movie sure. and, you know, fl- kind of went against the grain on that. It seemed to be yeah. the one part that people felt good about yep. um, a movie that everyone saw and most people didn't like. But um, correct, in this correct. particular case, I, I mean, I think I think you can basically, you know, bifurcate the the oscars into two categories two very simple categories okay categories that are also golden globe awards and categories that aren't and the ones that are also golden globe awards are the ones that laymen think they understand that's why there is no editing that's why there is no cinematography that's why there you know that's why there is no um Mm -hmm. short film but ones that you know ones like score or best song those people have no fucking clue what makes a good song outside of or a good score for that matter a I mean, good I score. Argue. Score, I would almost say you and I have, you know, we, we have a basic understanding because it's supposed to it, it, they're they're supposed to communicate with, engage with what's on screen or work against or in some way enhance song. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I like fucking Taylor what, Swift, but I, I'll say this about and what we've we've spoken of this about score, I think, in the past, but score tells you how to feel is really ultimately what it comes down to, right? If you watch a film without score, you'd be surprised how unmoored you feel as a, as a viewer. Um, It, it's, it really, really no pun intended underscores exactly how you're supposed to be feeling. Um, This score, I would argue sometimes does that. I think it's better on its own, ultimately, is what it comes down to, as opposed to actually helping the film itself. Well, it's diegetic. There's a there's a big yes, difference. Yes, 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 yes. yes. It's a die well, in general, in yeah, general. Yeah, right. Yeah. But I think the I, I it, it weirdly reminded me of uh, some, like, remember the the we've talked about it before, but the Studio 60 versus 30 Rock thing. Mm-hmm. Where in order to sell the idea that Studio 60 was a transcendent show, you had to have these transcendent sketches, which they yeah. didn't. They had these <laughs> awful sketches, these embarrassing sketches, and it ultimately it ultimately made you feel like, wait, we're 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 watching a show about people writing the worst comedy of all time, and we're being told it's funny. We're being told that this Correct. is moving the needle. Um, this had to be the best music of all time. Like the That's whole, true. this had to be like like it's this true. had to be this incredible. I mean, it's it's it. It reminds me a little bit like very, very rarely has a movie actually had a diegetic piece of music that was so important to the film and and, and served its purpose. Only two times I could think of. One is that thing you did. That thing that you did. My example. Yeah. That thing you do. <laughs> incredible song really sold the idea. I mean, there are actually three that I mean, Shallow is an example, obviously, like Shallow is new. And then the other one is um, is slowly falling. 
which mm. really kind From of once, yeah, sure. yeah, really, really like was an unbelievable song that really sold that moment and sold this idea that this guy was a hidden genius. Um, and they were harder had, to do instrumentally, I would argue. Extremely hard, <laughs> extremely hard, except it is like you can tell me all day long that like, I mean, what's a song in a movie that where it doesn't work? I don't know. Does Fever Dog really do it for hey you guys? Now. I love Fever uh, Dog. But I know well, does Fever like they they hit you over the head They're like Fever Dog is great. Fever Dog is great. I'm like, I heard Fever Dog, man. I, I mean, like, I don't this isn't fucking, you know, this isn't Leonard Skinner right here. So it's like. I think you can sell a little bit more, a little bit easier. This idea of this is an incredible piece of classical music. Uh, mm. And because I'm a dumb idiot who, you know, listens to pop music, uh, I, I could buy it easier. I, I've talked a lot but about it. No, this. no, I know what you're saying. I think that, I mean, as you were talking, I'm thinking about like Amadeus, for instance, right? Admittedly, Mozart is Mozart. And, and some of that music we already knew going in, but you absolutely understand the brilliance of of him and of the music he's making. Uh, this movie, I think, does a serviceable job at that in the sense that, like, I don't think that it takes away from the movie, but I don't know that it's as additive as they would like it to be. In I terms agree with of you. Really? But w- what do you think, Norm? Um, I've been trying to come up with a proper frame for this. And Amadeus is one that I thought of and also Immortal Beloved. Sure. And there's a new film called Chevalier that just played TIFF uh, about a, a heretofore unknown, like guess, an, an historically erased composer okay. just before the French Revolution because he was black and he was basically ceased to exist in the, in the literatures of the time. Sorry. <clears throat> uh, in the histories of the time. Um, and all three of those films are about the labor of composition and about how hard it is or how easy it is to make music, which is then played for us in the film in the most overwhelming way possible. Uh, right. Bernard Rose with Immortal Beloved was just doing all this visual stuff to, to, to demonstrate what Beethoven was feeling and experiencing and thinking when he composed the ninth symphony. And it's at risk of, I say that's wonderful music. You know, they, they, there's this device. If I, it shows up in the Buddy Holly story. If anybody remembers this, the, the film version where someone, yeah, someone takes Buddy Holly aside and says, you know, you're using strings. That's kind of amazing. The only person I've seen do that is I think it's Stravinsky. So like some sure, weird, sure. weird reference to tell the proles in the audience that this guy was ahead of his time. It's like, it's Buddy Holly. His music is incredibly simple and beautiful and wonderful. But yeah, True Love Ways had strings in it. So they had to have that button in the scene. And every time it feels kind of forced. Yeah. Um, because it's a filmmaker using tools that are not music to show you what music is. And it's like, uh, it just doesn't quite play the way I think it's supposed to. Sometimes with Amadeus, like you get it because it's filtered through Salieri's jealousy. Yeah. That is instantly relatable and because we've all had an experience where someone did something better than we did and we're like, God damn it. And then you put it on that scale and it really lands. The red violin doesn't have any of that though, because it's not about like, that's the problem. The violin is, is the subject and the characters are just in its orbit. And so if we're being asked to believe that the music oh, that the violin makes everything better, we have nothing to compare it to. And so it's a, it's a comparison that never plays Totally. As drama, so it's, all you have are these incidents that kind of circle around the violin, and it's it's. I think it's kind of interesting. That we've been talking for however long we've been talking, and this is the first time we basically addressed the plot. Well, it's 
you know, it's funny. I was I was I was watching this film yesterday. I I found my conceptually. I actually kind of like movies like this mm-hmm. in the sense of, um, you know, a, a, a host of characters, a, a, a an ensemble of characters that are brought together by a thing um, over time and, and, you know, cultures and what have you. Conceptually, I actually like the idea of this movie. The execution is where a lot of it comes into play for me, just in terms of it being flatly executed. Um, but but I do think that, you know, we're, we're talking about the music. We're talking about this inanimate object that is almost almost supernatural, it seems, in terms of its uh, power over people to some degree or another. Um, and and yet at the same time, that is inherently very diff- like unless you go full supernatural, there's a part of me that feels like there's an inertia that exists at the heart of this movie, which is that it's an inanimate object. It's a thing that actually I understand is what it brings out in other people. But like, I don't know. I'm I totally agree with you, Phil. You know what yeah. I mean? Everything you're saying, totem. Yeah. everything you're saying, I totally agree with you. It only the the. There, there are two kind of flaws that I think you were, you were talking, you were, Mm -hmm. you know, elucidating as you're talking. And basically, one is there, the, the, the red violin seems to have some property of supernatural, you know, kind of doom. (laughs) Yeah, it seems to kill people. Oh, it's a cursed object. Yeah. Which is why the ending makes no sense, but we can go into that. It's a cursed object. That's right. So it kind of (laughs) kills people in its wake after. So or ruins their lives at the very least. It goes, but it but it goes it's very opaque about that. That's that's one. Two is the more you know about a uh, about a an antique, about a you know heirloom, about the kind of thing that would be up for auction at auction for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, the less interesting it becomes. And now I know. I think the four major stories about this violin, and I know where it came from, and I wouldn't pay ten dollars for it. It's there. There's now. There's absolutely nothing about it. Like especially, That's interesting. That's especially interesting. seeing it next to all these exactly the same violins, and yeah. hearing people play other violins, and having it be, you know, in this, you know, essentially, uh, un, I, what's indiscernible, indistinguishable, indistinguishable yeah, yeah. um, to my ear at least, uh, it. Any any kind of thrill or any mystery is just sapped from this from this item because we've seen the last what seven hundred years of its existence. So I, I I think at least the way I would have done it, if I could, I I think the last half an hour is interesting, and sure. I think it, it it is potentially interesting. The Sam Jackson part, I think the notion of you know almost thomas crowning it is interesting in its own way i don't give two shit even if it's it really like you you see it from the at the very beginning you're like oh someone stole fucking yeah, it's, and it's very janky and it's it's <laughs> like it's 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 you know it's one of the easiest kind of bait you know within the easiest kind of you know switch yeah. jobs of all time but there is a much longer con here that could have been played out and 
And I don't know how much going back and forth and saying what's it, you know, why it's so important in these almost Bill and Ted quality esque, you know, uh, flashbacks. <laughs> you know, they're they're shot so flatly and they're all interiors, it's and it's just it it's it's very weird. But um, it's a I weird yeah. movie, and I, and I I you know I've always been intrigued by this film. Because I think some screenwriting book that I've read, and I've read them all because I read them all, used it as an example of how the uh, the protagonist of a film doesn't even have to be oh. an adamant object. It doesn't even it. You could even have a film about an inanimate object. And I thought, oh, and they said like the red violin. I can't think of anything else, frankly. But um, yeah, it's because yeah, I mean, there are movies about things that are passed from person to person, and and sure, they're all like they're all horror like films, like, like Contagion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, I mean, like it follows. I, yeah, it follows. The demon yeah. is sort of a, a concept more than an actual character. Except you're with, you know, you're with the main character of that movie. They are the, yeah, they are the and, targets. And, so you know, a, it's true for Fallen and it's true for a lot of these things. Horror movies, the type of thing you're talking about. And I think they're, I don't know. I mean, even even the ring is is kind of this idea, right? The ring is kind of this idea. But any like the way they make these things work is you stay with the the character who's trying to get rid of the curse over the right. course. Trying of, to understand it, learn its yeah. history, and then get rid of it because that gives you the whole story while staying in one straight line. Um, should we talk about the the whole? Well, plot yeah, I know. I'm, I'm gonna. I, I, I do want to give a. I want to give a brief synopsis and some context. Like how but many I, people I do, know this 24 year old? Well, yeah, I'm sure they don't. Point. I'm sure they certainly don't. But I do want to. Uh, I do want to say one other quick thing uh, before we do the the um, the synopsis, which is that as an organizing principle, this idea, the narrative structure of this film of the uh, of the auction being kind of the 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 nucleus and the hub that we continue to return to. Unfortunately, I think to what both of you are saying, and I agree, uh, the mystery of it, the the Sam Jackson appraisal component of it needed to be pulled through the entire film rather than just put in the third act. Because what you're left with is, uh, why do I keep coming back to the fucking auction? Like, what? why do I keep coming back to the present day if there's nothing pulling me back there? Um, that's a problem. That's an inherent narrative flaw in the film that I think had it been pulled through the whole thing would have helped it enormously. Um, synopsis. Uh, the intricate history of a beautiful antique violin is traced from its creation in Cremona, Italy in 1681, where a legendary violin maker paints it with his dead wife's blood to keep her memory alive to an auction house in modern day Montreal, where it draws the eye of an expert appraiser played by Samuel Jackson over the years between the violin travels through four different countries where it has profound impact on all those who own it. The red violin opened on June 11th, 1999 against Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me, the phantom menace, Notting Hill instinct and the mummy. Uh, Sam Jackson versus Sam Jackson in there. True, true. Yeah. Primo, primo release date, guys. Wait, wait. Why would you release this in fucking June? Like, I mean, I guess it still won an Oscar, but like, this is a this is a fall movie if ever there was one. But anyway, yeah, uh, in the fall in Canada, right? Uh, fall of ninety eight, right? Yeah. yeah, it played at TIFF in ninety eight and then rolled out. Right. I think like, mid November, right? Which makes sense. This this coming out in June in the U.S. makes no sense. But anyway, uh, Red Violin has 74% of Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 91% from audiences, which is a shocking, <laughs> shocking number as far as I'm concerned. We've done a lot of movies, Kenny, and 
Very few of them. Shocking. Like the, that I don't like get. Ninety percent silent for the audiences. But anyway, so uh, Roger Ebert gave the, the audience. I don't know. Roger Ebert gives the film three and a half out of four stars. Says there's a kind of ideal beauty that reduces us all to yearning for perfection. The Red Violin is about that yearning. It traces the story of a violin, the single most perfect acoustic machine I've ever seen, says a restorer from its maker in 17th century Italy to an auction room in Montreal. The violin passes from the rich to the poor, from Italy to Poland to England to China to Canada. It is shot, buried, almost burned, and stolen more than once. Uh, it produces music so beautiful that it makes you want to cry. The film is heedlessly ambitious in, its t- in a time of timid projects and easy formulas. The red violin has the kind of sweep and vision that we identify with elegant features from decades ago. Films that followed a story thread from one character to another. There really is little something here there really is a little something here for everyone music and culture politics and passion crime and intrigue history and even the backstage intrigue of the auction business the red violin follows not a person or a coat but an idea the idea that humans in all times and places are powerfully moved or threatened by the possibility that with our hands and minds we can create something that is perfect i mean that's all lovely i wish that i saw that movie um i i mean that's not the movie that i saw I appreciate that Ebert felt so passionate about about it, but like as is the case with his reviews, sometimes Kenny, I, I, I imagine you'll agree with me. There's a little bit of projection going on, right? There's a there's a movie that he wished he saw, and sometimes yep. he just kind of creates it in his mind's eye. Um, but I so I I want to talk about the the canon of it all for a second, Norm. In terms, sure, of, yeah, um, the production and the talent and the various people involved in this. You know, I. Um, you know, we've covered a couple Canadian films now, Kenny, in 99. Um, yep, for not, sure. not a ton, but a couple. Um, and this, to me, felt the most Canadian in its production than any of them. And by that, I mean uh, a, a lackluster production. Um, oh, I was going to say, is that because it throws a lot of money at trying to be something for everyone and fails? Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. That's the defining aspect of that sort of Canadian production to me. That's interesting. That, 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 that is an interesting take too. Yeah, I could see that. I, I mean, I, I think that what, what popped for me about this is sometimes a movie just looks and feels Canadian. Um, and, yeah. it, and by that, I mean, it doesn't have a lot of... Um, it, just the, the production is flat. I, 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 I look ambition and and just genuinely flatness i kenny mentioned it earlier it's a lot of interiors uh, which is fine i don't necessarily have a problem with that it's just the costumes and the production design itself lacked real gravity i found myself there's a couple locations you know when uh, jason fleming is playing in that auditorium so it's it's a it's a lovely location um oh yeah doesn't that, doesn't he have a greenhouse too in that or does. some some he big does. windowed atrium that which that is not it looks it's, really it's, nice it's like they had the money for those scenes they did but like the costumes kind of suck the, the the violin itself at, at times i just felt like felt like to me that there were 20 different versions of it and it, they all none of them really kind of jumped off the screen to me um, and then on top of all of it, I just felt like the direction by and large was just uninteresting. And I don't mean to suggest that that's a Canadian attribute, but I do think that part of the reason, and we've talked about this, Kenny, and I apologize, but part of the reason that I feel like so many Canadian films tend not to make it 
internationally, specifically in the States, is that there doesn't seem to be a lot that makes them feel special and fresh and, and their own thing. It's why filmmakers like Cronenberg and Denis Villeneuve and, 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 uh, oh my God. Uh, Go ahead. A Goyan, but why am I drawing a blank on uh, on Wild and uh, Oh John Mark Vallee? Oh John Mark, John Mark Vallee. Yeah, These filmmakers, on top of being French Canadian, which is its own thing, but I just think that there's something about them that feels so alive and new, and like you have to stand up and pay attention. Um, this is just not that. This filmmaker, who I don't particularly know all that well, so I'm I'm, I'm hoping that you'll be able to to exalt on it a little bit, just doesn't feel that interesting. Well, that's, and this actually ties to your earlier question of why did Don McKellar write this? Um, Francois Girard is, or was, this sort of great Quebecois hope before Villeneuve and Valet came along. He was the one in the early 90s who could work in English or French. He had uh, international appeal. So he and, and McKellar, Don, like I know Don at this point, and it's weird to be talking about this part of his career, but he and Don made a film called 32 Short Films about Glenn Gould in 1993, I think, or 94. It was released in 94, 93, 94. A and a big, big movie. Big movie Canada. everywhere. And, and an international hit, exactly. Um, and it was a huge deal for the production company, Rhombus Media, because they immediately found themselves on this world stage competing with other art films at a time when the concept of the art house picture was still in flux, right? Like Miramax hadn't taken over fully yet. There was no branding. You could put a movie around the world if you had the right combination of talent. And 32 short films about Glenn Gold is great. Like it's a terrific little film. It's got a great concept. It's got a magnificent central performance from Colm Fior, a, a, a legendary at this point Canadian stage and screen actor who also shows up in The Red Violin as sort of a nod. Um, and it was this small, spare, beautiful, clever film that played with the idea of this revered Canadian genius, this pianist who uh, popularized and revolutionized classical piano in Canada at a certain point in time through mostly through radio, through the CBC and gave the country a national identity for a little tiny moment as, you know, snooty, but accessible. It's hard to explain. Glenn Gould was an incredibly eccentric person. Most of his recordings are defined by both his incredible performances, but also the fact that he could not stop himself from humming. He made Mm. noises that are on the recordings and now they're intrinsic. Like, the Goldberg variations are not the Goldberg variations. Sorry. The Goldberg variations are not the Goldberg variations. If you don't hear him going mm, mm, in the background. And it's fascinating because <laughs> now digitally that would be removed, right? Like it's this perfect moment of analog and broadcast and live where his reputation was formed by that. And the, the movie kind of leans into it a little bit. There's some scenes of him rehearsing and playing at CBC and, and the engineers making faces. And it's this little tiny inside joke that all of Canada knew for 20 seconds. And as soon as the movie came out and started winning awards on the festival circuit and played internationally, and I think Sony Classical picked it up for home video, yeah, which Sony was a... Pictures Classic, yeah. No, no, Sony Classical, oh, classical. The, le- oh. the record label, mm-hmm. picked it up for DVD. 
when that happened in the like for video uh, internationally and then the DVD came out with their imprimatur and it was this really weird thing where it shouldn't have happened they had no distribution for that sort of thing but they had performance videos and so they just decided they were going to release their first movie this way and yeah i think sony pictures classics had it in the states but sony classical had it on home video so for a while the rights were all messed up too but that gave rhombus media this incredible infusion of both money and standing yeah and they wanted another one and eventually it becomes the red violin well it's interesting because so i again i I did cursory research on this just in terms of to have a little bit of context but i guess they did go to some hollywood studios um with this with this idea right like they wanted they wanted partners and and as you can imagine, you know, a lot of these Hollywood studios were like, you know, less, less foreign languages, more intrigue, more, you know, and as, as you would imagine, and, and they didn't want to do that. More power to them. Uh, and ultimately, it's entirely produced by Rhombus Media for the most part. Um, with some yeah, I other... think there was some American funding. Little, not American, yeah. sorry, British funding. I think that like Film 4 got involved. Right. It's, it's, it's just, it's interesting that there was a moment where it felt like these guys could have sorry you're what you're oh the channel four not channel four my mistake no worries um these two guys could have conceivably made this film with a hollywood studio for more money and and what have you um they just would have had to make some concessions and they didn't want to. And, and listen, honestly, more power to them for, for sticking to their guns about mm-hmm. it. But I think what we're left with is a flatter movie for it, a perhaps less engaging film for it. I don't think that this film necessarily needs to have all the subtitles to be the film that it is. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, I was watching this film yesterday thinking this feels kind of like a less interesting version of cloud Atlas. Um, now, now I, cloud saw, Atlas, I saw you tweeted that I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I don't mean that in the sense that Cloud Atlas has its own problems as a film, I guess, to some degree as well, although it's grown on me a lot in the years, in the subsequent years that I've watched it. I mean, um, it's trying to be something, right? Even if it doesn't fully succeed, to. it has an idea in mind it and is it's going for it. A hundred percent. I mean, as the Wachowskis tend to do, striving and taking swings and God bless them for it. Um, it's also got a piece of music at the center of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about and and I don't know if you guys feel the same, but there's something about the fact that Cloud Atlas is about a piece of music and it's about the entanglements and the, the narrative within the music and how that connects to all these different stories that makes it more successful than an instrument. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that there's just something because there's a story in the music as opposed to once the instrument is made, and the actual nature of with which it's made, then it becomes a vessel for other people's. Thing. It just, it doesn't feel, I don't know how to, I, I don't perhaps, know. But... Yeah, no, I, I, I can, you know I can, I, yes, yeah. there's, there's, there's a mystery and there's an unknowable quality to what's happening in cloud Atlas and no one, nobody gets obsessed with figuring out something they already know. Yes. Right. Um, and I think that that kind of, I, I, I think that that is the central misunderstanding of this film that the idea that in a in a narrative feature audiences want pat and complete answers yeah and Mm. i don't think i think people might say they do but i don't think people actually do 
I think people want something they can discuss and something they can obsess over and something they can something that is, you know, half formed or fully or 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 mysterious in some way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the kind of thing that someone would, you know, risk their life for. Like, for instance, the the grail in um, Last Crusade. Sure. Right. You don't really know what the powers of that grail is. You don't really know anything. Could you imagine how horrible that movie would be if it did half an hour on Jesus Christ finding the grail and drinking from the grail and sharing the grail at the Last Supper? It's no, I, it, it, it's, it's, no, it's no one wants that, to see Forrest Gump or Zelig with a fucking inanimate object bouncing. Or I personally don't want to see that. Well, Zelig himself is somewhat inanimate, but yeah, Zelig. Is- <laughs> But no, but I again, it gets the people who respond to Zelig and it's the people chasing yes, the yes, Ark yes. or the Grail. And, and yeah, the sense of mystery at the heart of a story is yeah. great. But the idea that you're going to follow this thing from owner to owner and by the, I mean, by the second segment, yeah, it's, you've seen the whole movie. Like there's mm-hmm. nowhere, there's yeah. nowhere dramatic for this thing to go. And it's like my problem with found footage films is that the thing, nothing can happen. Nothing of any consequence can happen until the very end because we're watching found footage. Therefore, I mean, something might be interesting, but nothing is going to happen to the person holding the camera until the movie's over. And in the red violin, there's a violin and we're just going to keep following the violin and each cycle will repeat itself and someone will die because of the tarot stuff at the beginning. Like it's already been laid out that this yep. is a tragedy. It's yep. been laid out that this is about, people uh in different cultures in different time periods and then for the film not to have any fun with that and for it to be as dour as it is especially because it was written by don mckeller who is one of the most interesting weirdos to come out of canadian cinema just as a novelist not as a novelist sorry as a storyteller as a as a narrative constructor he does fun things and silly things and he lets characters be vulnerable or he lets characters be weak and emotional in interesting ways. And none of that comes through in this because it's been so machine tooled to appeal to literally everybody that it appeals to no one. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. Well, ex- except the, the 91% of the, uh, yeah, the audience, the, the audience of Rod Tim, it's super that could be weird. 10 people, by the way. That could be, 10 yeah, people. a bunch of Sam Jackson, super fans. <laughs> You have to be a super fan to like yes, this you really would. For, for Sam Jackson. But no, I love I'll his say, performance, but yeah, I'll say this. You brought up the tarot card thing, which I think is, is worth um, unpacking for a quick second. Cause uh, for our listeners, essentially the wife of the, of the violin maker, the doomed wife, don't the forget doomed wife, doomed my apologies, wife. the doomed because wife, everybody's the doomed, doomed, in the this doomed pregnant wife uh, has her, her tarot cards read, which is used as sort of a narrative device that we keep popping back to as sort of chapters of this story, which I understand theoretically is a good idea. But the problem is that it doesn't actually pull you through the narrative or make you interested in what's coming. If the if, as I mentioned earlier, if the Sam Jackson mystery or or had they used Sam Jackson learning about the violin as the narrative structure of this movie, at the very least, I would have understood why we kept coming back to him. But instead, what we're left with is this sort of vague notion that the people that are bidding on this violin are somehow loosely connected to the stories. Yeah, which it's not real. Like I. 
no, it's a red execute. herring. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah. It would be it would be a red herring if it was better designed. Yeah, I would right. say because it like, doesn't. I couldn't I'd never tell you considered that. Well, yeah, no, I think that that's what it was. Right there was the guy who came from the. I don't know the Jason Fleming Foundation. Correct. I don't remember Correct. what it was actually like, called. Sandra O is somehow connected to the Chinese story, which I'm still not entirely convinced. Mm. I understand what that connection no. is. Well, it's I don't understand anyway. So that's and the, that too. The, the Chinese, the Chinese story is the one that really kind of was like, I've had enough here. But um, <laughs> oh, the Chinese story is the one that feels like the most simplest in concept. Like if someone yes. wrote it down, and also some someone who was, let's say, used to dealing with the bureaucracy of telephone Canada and the impossibility of getting anything made. So he's made a, he's made a metaphor of how sure. hard it is to get art sure. approved and how uh, like cultural film bodies do not uh, uh, welcome innovation. Sure. Sure. Like that's the most interesting segment to me in retrospect, but to watch it, it is a slog. Yeah, it's a and slog. nothing happens and nothing can happen because the violin has to go to the next person, right? That's my yeah. whole problem with it. The other thing that struck me this time through was just how incongruous the segments are and and how they all depend on the tarot cards setting the stage by having us describe them. But then you pull back and it's like the tarot reader is supposedly reading this woman's fate, but she's reading a violin's fate and the violin has no agency and the violin has no, like you will be reborn. No, no, you're a violin. You're only ever going to be like, none of it makes sense in retrospect. It sounds like a great device. And the hook, the twist is that she's been reading the violin's fortune because the violin will be smeared with the blood of like the varnish is created with the blood of, of this dead woman. But that's the twist of the movie, which isn't revealed until the very end. And And then the coda is insane because the coda is, Sam Jackson steals said violin, to, which is apparently to cursed. His child, to, to yeah. give to his child, who, by the way, who would give his, da- his daughter does not give a shit about this violin, but that's no, but, she, but she's dying anyway, so it's you know sure. But it's it's like unless you want us to think that this is a an, a ring esque scenario, which is not obviously what they want, but I that would have been an interesting. Oh, answer. I don't know that. By the way. So? No, okay. I think they, what, he I, hates his daughter and he wants to give her No, his he doesn't know. I think it's I mean okay. the the, okay. the ring is a good example. The the horrible example I was thinking was kids. Um where, you know, at the end something that, you know, yes. you know, it seems like one thing is actually another thing. Correct. Um but I, I yeah, no, I I as we're talking, mm-hmm. my opinion has changed just a little bit. Okay. And weirdly enough, the it's it has it hasn't made the film better in my estimation, but I think I'm getting to why I think the film doesn't work. OK, and it is because the characterization of these people in these four vignettes, these characters is so poor, but it's not an impossible task to make us care about these characters in each one of these four vignettes. It's not an impossible task to start understanding that the time that that the moment they inherit this violin or get this violin that they're doomed it's not and and, and that's could be an upsetting thing weirdly enough the movie that's jumping to my head movies because it's really you know it's it's seven or eight things at this point is the child's play series where chucky is the violin chucky is the violin <laughs> and yes chucky well, he shows up he makes everyone's life worse and he's never going to die 
is is kind of the point I'm making. He's never gonna die, so you never and you know that there's now there's multiple Chuckies, and you, you know that there's never gonna be a situation where Chucky does move on to the next movie. But this is but but he is this thing that you receive that is at some point going to kill you. And the reason the films in that series that the, the reason the film in that those series that work one is they're hilarious, uh, two they don't take themselves that seriously, but three is because you do not want these people to get killed by this demonic doll. So I think there is a way where you do start to understand in a fallen-esque way um, that this violin is a cursed object. The yeah. moment you, you know, you, 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 you put bow to it, you're doomed. Yep. Um, and it could be a very upsetting thing, but these four vignettes are so fucking dull and and the one that, you know, sticks in my memory, you know, the, 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 the most is the Jason Fleming one because it's different, but I just, despised that guy can i yeah can, i, I yeah, yeah lord helps a lot he sucks i you know it's i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. During a portion of the film, um, specifically when uh, Greta Scacchi, I, I believe that's how you say it, Scacchi. Scacchi. I made it she, up. <laughs> she discovers Jason Fleming having an affair, I guess an affair, with uh, with Minnie Driver. Um, and she doesn't blame either of them. She, yeah. she blames the violin. She yeah. shoots the violin. And she shoots the violin. And I truly, <laughs> at that point, I honestly thought, I would love to 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 give the violin vo or something. I want to hear the violin because I literally. You might be wondering how it. I got here. Yeah, I actually I was gonna say like that's the opening of the film, the record scratch, and yeah. maybe you know he's got like a Mario Brothers voice. Yeah, that's, hey, that's a me. I, like, I I when she saw it, I heard it scream out like "ow!" You know what I mean? Like it just it felt just so. Scream. So absurd at this point. It is. They honestly, yes. it's what you're saying, Kenny, which is you need to make this violin's cursedness dialed up, right? Like it's you a feature, really not a bug, right? right exactly. Potentially, exactly. potentially, exactly. right? I mean, it's you know, I, it, 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 there's so many things like this. Like silly. it's very monkey's paws, right? It's yes. just so many things like this that, and, and it's so funny because the moment that it kind of occurred to me that it was somewhat supernatural or cursed or whatever, yeah. uh, it was the moment the movie like turned from something that I thought was kind of, I, I thought was going to be kind of a passive 
experience mm-hmm. that I would almost be watching something that was almost like a documentary and it just kind of allow something something potentially beautiful to wash over to me over me to something that I was I, I definitely leaned in a little more when I realized that's what was going on there. So that's good. I I lowered my expectations from something sure. beautiful to maybe, you know, something ridiculous and fun. Um, but it never kind it never kind of got either place. So and I think it and I think it aspired to beautiful still. I think it aspired to transcendence. Um, and that's even more embarrassing. It's it's definitely I think it's driving for two things. One is what you were talking about, Norm, which is a universality. Um, there's an attempt here to make a sort of global movie, a movie that could speak to lots of different cultures and and also very high minded in terms of its artistic aspirations. Um, the, the issue, of course, as we're talking about is is in execution, the blandness with which it attempts to do these things. But like there's also just weird moments that I didn't wasn't really sure how to read. In the first chapter, we've got this little boy, this orphan uh, who uh, is a sort of a brilliant violin prodigy um, who has a heart. Uh, sort of a, a heart defect and the the metronome is setting off his heart defect and then right at, at, as he's about to perform for like the, the people he's, he drops dead mm-hmm. he literally collapses and I I laughed I shouldn't I know no, it's not it, meant to be funny but it is it, it but it is right because it's a, it's a subversion of the bit but it's also the only place this thing can go and I think if that had been a three minute short vignette like so the that would have been great because it would tell you that this film isn't going to be completely predictable in its tone and it's going to be playful. And I'm sure it's structured as a joke that just got plain down into something more tragic because someone else is reading this draft of the script and going, no, no, this is a tragedy. That can't, we can't laugh at this. Right. This is a child dying. It's like, well, like the it's a cursed laugh. object that well, kills everybody. Wait till you see his, wait till you see his wig. Then you'll think it's funny. You know? <laughs> but I also feel like, you're not you're not wrong, Norm, because like he collapses. Right. And then there's a wide shot that they kind of hold in for a second. And then the cut, all of that does play towards a darkly comedic thing. Right. But they don't go far enough with it. So you're left with this kind of like, wait, am I supposed to be laughing? Am I not supposed to be laughing? And then we have this moment when the when the violin is stolen. He's buried with the violin and then grave robbers. So, so he can so he could play it in heaven. So he could play it in heaven, obviously. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. So the and but we don't see the grave robbers, which I kind of wanted to see. We're it, it's this uh, there's this weird sort of almost twilighty morning shot of the various graves that have been robbed, and we're just led to believe that it's been stolen. Um, it, again, weird transitions between these various stories. They're not particularly clean either. So you're kind of left with this weird kind of jarringness between how the violin gets from one place to the next. Yeah, Um, I think a lot of that is due to the good enough uh, rule of Canadian cinema at the time, right? Which is just like, you know what? This is the money we have. This is the time we have. We're just going to do our very best to uh, fudge it, to just get around these things that are missing. But it is absolutely a thing that was happening in the stuff that was being made here at the time because... We were still shooting on film, and film is incredibly expensive. Everything is expensive. The uh, the time is is so limited and tight, and the crews are you know they have to go do a street legal in an hour. You can't keep going, and every single compromise. I about street legal in a very long time. 
Oh yeah, it's uh, it it haunts these. Well, okay, what, it wouldn't have been street legal in the what 90s. is it street? Been, what's street legal? Exactly what you would expect it to be, just based on the title, Kenny. But please, Norm, tell him what. Yeah, it was an '80s lawyer show in Canada. Oh um, yes, yeah, no. credit for having yeah. it before LA Law, but all right, should. yeah, good name. A lot of lot of nice people in it. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, but uh, uh, but what you're seeing yeah. is the combination of being noted to death and having no money to realize the things that you want to realize, and it just ends up turning the whole thing into like, I don't even know what the appropriate, like maple syrup is a bad analogy because maple syrup has a vivid flavor, but it's just like you're watching everything be ground to a fine paste that can then be slapped up into a poster and it has all the elements. And then you're asking the audience to fill in the blanks for you. And it's, it just, it doesn't work here because we don't have the goodwill uh, of of a strong opening or a midsection or an invention, mm-hmm. a twist, something that will make it interesting. And what it is, is the sense that, and this is exactly what the Canadian art house cinema was at this point in time. This is a movie that is good for you. Yep. Right. Like yeah. if you watch this, yep. you're doing a service. You're, you're learning something about music. You're learning something about the world because we're going to show you different parts. It's basically a travelogue film um, that would have been, so much, so much studio, it wasn't even studios. We didn't have studios, but so much production company studio stuff is trying to be movies that its founders remember fondly, like stuff from the 60s or 70s. This is the equivalent of a big roadshow picture. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work. It's not that because it can't be that. But it, this is the other thing to remember is this is two years after The English Patient, uh, which is a film that Canada was very happy to take credit for, even though. It was made by an English person, and I think we had some money in it. But ultimately, it was on, Dodge, it was, right? that it was on Dodge's thing. novel, right? And I think Alliance did put some money in through Miramax through the deal they had there. But okay. we were so high on that once it like won the people's. I think it won the people's choice award at TIFF. It, yeah, I think it, it premiered here. It was a huge deal. It won the Oscar. Um, and uh, my personal favorite thing about the English Patient is that no one even cares that it's a film about a Nazi collaborator who betrays. His entire, he betrays the allies to get back to a dead woman. It's all about pettiness. It's all about revenge. And that's the beauty of Ondaatje's novel is that it tangles all these things up together. And then Mingela is smart enough that it plays them. And everybody's like, oh, it's this incredible swooning romance. It's like, well, mm-hmm. for part of it, it is. But then it goes, it takes this dark turn right. and no one acknowledges it. And so everybody suddenly goes, make another one like that. Mm-hmm. And the red violin and also um, Istvan Zabo's Sunshine, which came along shortly thereafter, are our attempts to do another English patient. And the materials aren't right, and the structure isn't there, and Mingela's not around for yeah. those. And what you see are these weird carbon copy echoes. And it felt to me like watching the Red Violin was like, this is the draft that was closest somehow to the English patient, because it's about longing and, and history and stuff. It's all the wrong takeaways from the English patient. Is exactly. But this is what got made, and so now we're stuck with it. I, you know, I, I, you, you mentioned earlier about flattening of things, of sort of like turning things into into a paste, mm-hmm. uh, which feels like a, a good transition to Sam Jackson's performance. Who it takes it takes a a director to make Sam Jackson uninteresting. Uh, he is one of He's the trying. most interesting. I didn't think he was uninteresting. I well, okay. I I, I love Sam Jackson as uh, what is he a a appraiser. Violin appraiser sure, slash sure. thief fish guy. 
He's a gentleman thief. I just assume this is like the forty seventh violin he's stolen. We're okay, all right. About it, it's. I, I guess what I, I, I mean thought it say, was. A, I thought it was a late decision he made. But I mean, yeah, it's supposed to be impulsive. Once he realizes what this thing is, he wants to give it to his daughter because she'll value it somehow, even though he's missed the point about it killing everybody. Ugh. So this is the other thing. You mentioned all these other franchises, all these other horror movies, but nobody's talked about the one that I've been holding in my holster. I've had holstered the whole time. It's Hellraiser. Like it's mm-hmm. Hellraiser. This okay. is the lament. This violin is the lament configuration. It was forged in death and misery. Yeah, it yeah, is yeah, yeah. Only there to awaken or summon bad things. There are no Cenobites. I think Cenobites or some other kind of avatar of this thing would have been great. If there's a character who knows the legend in every time period, then suddenly the movie becomes more interesting. It doesn't have to be a horror film, but it can be one person who says, "Oh, I've heard stories of this violin," and no one ever says it because we're not supposed to know about the blood, right? Like that by making it a twist, they undermine the entire story. Yeah. You know, it's, it's reminds me of, interestingly enough, this in 99, we've done so many movies uh, about the apocalypse one way or another. Mm -hmm. And most of them were kind of this, you know, satanic apocalypse and uh what the satanic apocalypse you know kind of subgenre always does is you have some kind of cult that understands or believes to understand the mystery the one that i'm thinking of is the, is the polanski one with johnny depp what's that horrible oh, ninth gate ninth gate right yeah that whole film you have uh i'm, I'm mumbo jumbo i love that yeah you, who's the dude in that the frank very langella. famous frank langella yes. having the best day Yes, yeah, Frank gets to do that. Fra- yes. robe? Come on. It, so Frank Langella can really tell you everything in the whole movie is through Johnny Depp's point of view, where he learns more and more about this this book, essentially, uh, this mm-hmm. cursed book. Um, I think this movie in particular, the Red Violin, made a decision not to go uh satanic. It, it, and when you, when you which is hard, honestly, like I'm writing something right now that has been satanic for its entire five year uh, where the, you know, the, the, the villain ultimately was the devil. Mm-hmm. And just like two months ago, we're like, what if it was something other than the devil? What the fuck else is there? <laughs> like, that, like, that's the thing. It's just like, it's, it's yeah. just, we, I am racking my brain. So like, what is, what else can you use? Yeah. It, it's it's hard and yep. and red violin kind of decided well we're gonna replace like the devil with nothing yep. and that sucks you know it's, in its own way it, it's left us all kind of you know twisting in the wind i there's a part i mean i i don't mean to belabor this but if if there was a way to to unpack um a a murder or or the blood component with the wife, whatever it is, if you could have created this circuitous route to to Sam Jackson's reveal or or, or uh, revelation that the blood was in the varnish, the whatever it is, right? Like if you could have found a way to pull that through it, I really do think you would have had at the very least you would have had me sitting up a little bit more, but because these, these various things feel so inconsequential to one another, that's death for a movie. If I'm, if I'm watching it as a viewer and it all feels sort of meaningless, what the fuck am I there for? And, and, and to to come back to what I was saying about the Sam Jackson performance, we're going to do our top five Sam Jackson films at, uh, in a, in a few moments, Kenny's going to do, uh, 
top five something else too um yeah um, but as a, as a little special treat for y'all a little special treat for you guys um i think this role was apparently originally offered to morgan freeman um and i i, I i'm not suggesting that it would have been better or worse but i do think that this is an atypical type role for for Sam Jackson. Not in a, I don't say this in a bad way. I just think he's very dialed down in this. There's really one moment when he yells at a hotel desk clerk that he actually started to feel like the Sam Jackson we we know and love. Um, it, it's he he just kind of feels like he's going through the motions. My assumption is that they probably had Sam Jackson for three, maybe four days on this movie, if that. Um, and it's it's lesser for it there's this just this weird sort of the performance just doesn't feel engaged it's like just sort of, okay yeah i mean part of it is just the expectation now that sam jackson will be sam jackson sure um in 98 he was doing like he's just a couple years off of trees lounge which is one of my favorite performances of his he's just brown uh yeah 97 um right he just made it so maybe this was his, his thing to not do that yeah. Uh, and be something else. But also, I don't think they could have ever got Morgan Freeman. They couldn't afford Morgan Freeman in 1997 when they shot this thing. Uh, and Sam Jackson was doing, like, he was doing a bunch of international, he's in this UK-Canadian thing called the 51st State around the same time, that. I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, which was produced by Alliance, the same company that distributed the Red Violin. And I think he was just available. And the man, they shot the man here around well, the same also, time with Eugene Levy, the, right? Yeah. This is the period in his life, in his career, where you start to feel like he might, he still has a little bit of juice and he wants to kind of do some weird stuff, right? Like, I, I would argue this is, you know, he doesn't really go for Oscars per se, but it does feel like there are certain performances or certain movies where you do get the, imp- like, basically the Tarantino stuff, you do get the impression that, like, he's hoping that there is an Oscar nomination in his future. Yeah. Well, when was the um, time to kill? 90, 96, right? Like that's not so like far in mirror. And then Duke Lucie's around the corner, which is the one that first uses him as the Samuel Jackson, the, like the joke of how big he is and how self-aware he is. That starts, yeah. it's right there. Yeah. So this is that little window where he just took every gig he could. It feels that way. Yeah. And well, he also, tried to position himself for something. He was an interesting. He was at an interesting point in his career yes, because I yes. thought it was really interesting in like ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight when uh, when it gets announced that Lucas is making the prequel trilogy. Correct. He called his shot. I specifically yeah, yeah. remember him saying that he would play anybody in the movie. Uh, and he he kind of was, I don't even know if he was at that point in his career where he could, and nobody else did that. And the fact that he actually got Mace Windu, it made me think anybody could have done it, actually. <laughs> it made me think <laughs> well, that like anybody now. anybody could have could have said, put me in there, put me in the Jedi Council yeah. somewhere. Because it, I mean, weirdly, it was only like kind of Sam Jackson and Jimmy Smiths who were in that trilogy who were kind of like known entities going into it. Right. Yep. I mean, and some of the older guys, the Christopher Lee's and all that, but um, you know, I but thought that was got like friends of Favreau, like you've got Amy Sedaris showing up in the Mandalorian and you're just like, what, what are we doing? Well, now it's, yeah, now it's, I mean, now like Werner Herzog's in it. Like who knows what's going to happen? These who knows are, who's going to show up? These things are big machines. You just have to cast oh, yeah. all the roles. I actually, I uh, I got to talk to Herzog about it last week. He was in town for TIFF, and oh, yeah? we did a little video. My thing favorite actor. His, he is, He's well, so good. 
we talked about that specific thing about how this quality of his is allowing people to cast him and he's open to it like parks and recreation and Jack Reacher and all these other things. And he had this great thing about how um, Favreau is just packing the Mandalorian with people. He wants other audiences to discover and, you know, to look them up and see it's like Amy Sidaris, who's this weirdo. And it turns out she's got all kinds of stuff. And I, I kind of love that because it gives the, it gives the world an eccentricity while we're watching it. If you recognize these people like Paul Sun Young Lee is in, is a semi regular at this point in the Mandalorian. And I know, I know how happy it makes him to be part of this thing, but also just to be casting an Asian Canadian man in a major role, what's becoming a major role, a recurring role anyway. And I, I really hope this means he has something to do in this new Republic show that um, uh, Gina Carano is no longer part of mm-hmm. is like, that's transformative because yeah. it does just like casting Samuel L. Jackson, it blows the world open. Totally. I'm a, yeah. And, and I'm a pod listener to the pod. Now I'm a big wrestling fan and Sasha Banks has a big role in, in this show. And she, anyone who watches knows like, all right, she's a black female wrestler. It's not, you know, there aren't a ton of them. But everyone who watched wrestling knows she's the biggest fucking star in the world. And if people just give her an opportunity, she could potentially have that scene of rock-like potential. But it's never happened for a female wrestler like that. So it's it's a, just another cool thing. I, I have no doubt that someone involved is like, we got to get this woman, you know, in a, in a different kind of world. Um, let's let's rate this so that we can do our t- our uh, Sam Jackson movies, and then I also. Well, I just want to say about Werner Herzog, sure. real fast. Uh, gives maybe the best supporting performance of '99, and uh, Julian Donkey Boy. Oh yes, sure. Uh, yeah, I know he's good in that movie. I I yeah. I, uh, outrageous I mean, you know my on, on uh, outrageous. Boy, but, yeah. He's a Damn. he is the king of kings in that film. Okay. Um. So, I had not seen this film in '99, so I can't really rate it. Um, I, I, I have a vague recollection of, of renting it at some point and perhaps falling asleep during it at home, but I don't really remember. So I'm not going to rate it. Uh, before this podcast, I was at a 62. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that this movie is, is, is good necessarily. I'm definitely going down per our conversation, but I do feel like my initial response to it was, this is pretty innocuous. I, it, it's not some, you know, it's just what it is. Um, I'm I'm going down to like I'm going to go down to like a 55. Like I still, I, I don't think this movie's good. I don't know that I would. You know, I know that we've talked about the recommending thing. Um, I, I think that this movie is is fine. Uh, it's not a it's not offensive. Um, I don't know. It's hard for me to kind of hate on it enough to put it below 50. But I'm also kind of like I don't really know how I feel about it in, in, outside of that. But uh, Kenny, what about you? Hated it enough to put it below fifty. Okay, um, but not much, not far below. I, I, I had it at a forty-five going into this podcast. Um, my sense is we're kind of in a similar headspace. Yeah. We're just kind of coming down more on the, you know, uh, I, I appreciate what you guys are trying to do. Uh, it is a big swing. It's a different kind of film. Didn't work for me, but like nobody should be embarrassed by this. No, I'm, I think maybe you should be a little embarrassed by it, but just a little bit. I'm going to go down to like a 42. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to get into like the 30s where I think that really is like condemning a film. Yeah, yeah like below below 40, I do think, you know, you are kind of being you're, you're being, you know, you're kind of putting you know, fixing that like scarlet letter on them. Um, the scarlet S for stinker. 
So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to I'm going to keep it at what did I say? 42. 42. Yeah. 42. It is for the red violin. What about you, Norm? Where where were you uh, in '99, and where are you now? Ooh, um, in '99, I probably would have been because we were rating things out of five, and we didn't have half stars at the star. I probably would have been generous and given it a three. Okay. For at least trying something. Sure. So that would translate to about like a 59 or a 60. Yep. Yep. And in the rearview mirror, now I realize it is like the movie you recommend to the person who you think is the least interesting person you know. Because, <laughs> uh, oh, you'll like this. There's something in it that you'll probably connect to. And it's just yeah. so dismissive and mean of me. But I would sure. go 40 because it's just, eh, especially since we also, we haven't talked about it enough, but Don McKellar's Last Night is out there oh. right alongside it. Kenny's and one of his favorite films of 99. It's a great movie. I just watched it again um, just before the pandemic, actually, because uh, we, uh, Don and I did a Q&A after uh, a screening of the 4K restoration up at the Paradise Theater, and that thing holds up. That's, like that's to see that so 4K much. restoration. Yeah, yeah, no one knows where it is. The right, the restoration was done in Canada. Nobody knows who has the rights to it, uh, which is so weird. Like we can't even. I've been trying to negotiate something for it at TIFF, and we can't figure it out. It's a great, great movie. I'll fly anywhere for it. It's one of yeah. it's. And it nice, yeah, it's one of my favorite it looks movies. Better than it has on disc. Well, it ever. looks like shit. Yeah. That's well, the only there's thing. A filter that they use that's supposed to be the sort of the sun is burning out the world. And so everything's kind of orange and yellow. And there's a post-production yeah. thing that they did. And it just wasn't transferred properly in the first yeah, place to video. So they all. Well, that's what it seems smoke. like. Yeah. They, it, it, it seems like the transfer is really poor. And also, you, mean, you can't do anything about the aspect ratio. When I'm not an aspect ratio. Oh, like, that's right. Lionsgate only released in a four by three. Four three. I'm not, a, I'm not. I'm not. I have a, a letter. I bought a letterbox disc in the U.S. But or the, sorry, the U.K. But it's still four by three widescreen. So the the proper uh, scope, or no, it's not scope, but the proper widescreen version of it mm-hmm. will be part of the restoration if that ever finds a home. And I, I mean, that, that would be so nice because that is the only drawback of that film is, you know, kind of these these technical things because like it's impossible to watch it properly. Yeah, but it's brilliant, beautiful. Fucking it's great. Movie. It's great, and yeah. maybe the most Canadian movie ever made because it is about. Um, repression like it's about repressing your own misery for the collective good which is kind of our deal yep it's it's, oh my god amazing amazing movie um this is not uh that being said um let's talk sam jackson for for a quick beat because i want to get your thoughts norm on the movie we're covering next week as well um i'll start we're just going to kind of go around the horn um for the top five my five is unbreakable um, I think it's a great Sam Jackson performance. Um, it's, uh, I actually would argue an underrated Sam Jackson performance. I think that that movie by and large is kind of beloved by a certain subsect of M night Shyamalan fans. Um, I think it's a really good movie. I think he's really good in it. Uh, Kenny, what's your five? I just want to comment on your five real fast. I, I, I think it's a pretty bad movie and I never really understood the, I never really understood the reclamation of that film, Um, but I do like him in it. And uh, I I mean, I I, I love him in it. I love him going kind of this, you know, this this weirdo villainy thing. My number five is Heart Eight, Um, a movie that I love and think is great. I don't think 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 people necessarily think of Sam Jackson when they think of that film, but he's critically important to that that movie and the narrative. Um, and it kind of hits a little bit, you know, kind of in that Jackson Sans thing. So it's after Pulp Fiction, but it's before people kind of knew the full breadth of what he uh, he does and he's capable of. Um, and I love him in it. Uh, 
What's your five, Norm? Are we going like just one at a time, five? Yeah, we'll just do it. I did not structure them. I just wrote them down as I saw, as they came to mind. Uh, I I think my number five, I'm just going to put changing lanes in there because it's been completely forgotten and nobody thinks about it. But that is a really smart film about what it's doing and using Sam Jackson the way that it does. Yep. It, that, at that point in time, it's like 2003 or four, and it's coming off on break. It's coming off all these big, big roles for him. And he just gets to be righteously angry in that Samuel L. Jackson way. Mm-hmm. But we're on his side, even though he's the villain, which is such an interesting choice for him. Like he's sympathetic in a way that I don't think even the movie expected him to be. I, I, I love that movie. I almost great, put it on my list. It's a great movie and a movie that unfortunately doesn't get made anymore, right? Like that was yeah. the kind of the last vestige of the mid-tier uh, actor-oriented. Actor-driven thriller, yeah. Director. It's just a bummer. It wouldn't, great, yeah. it, it wouldn't get made with two stars. So it's him and Affleck. He wouldn't get made with yeah. two stars who are very much in their like 10 million plus mode yes. where they're making money. But like that movie does get made all the time with yes. like... Uh, you know, with direct to video guys, but not um, as well. No, no like, I mean, that's the other problem. You, know, like you have a director who sort of inherently, because Roger Michelle is English and he just comes in and makes assumptions about class that actually play into the story instead yeah. of not working. Like, to, to, I, I watched it again a little while ago and it's like, yeah, this movie could have gone so wrong so hard. Yep. But by playing into the, like, the simple personality based thing and then letting all the other stuff about where they're from and who they are and what they're dealing with by letting that just sort of come out mm-hmm. instead of making it a point about the American, like racism isn't even as much of a, as a factor as it should be. Mm-hmm. But by doing that, you focus on the character dynamics and then the, the, the nature of who's white and who's black actually sort of flows from it. It's really, really good. It's a very, and it's a very good movie. really good use of Sidney Pollack, a, uh, an actor I'm not yeah. always into, but uh, I like him a lot in this type of role. You know, I think he, I, I, I think he really kind of, I think, I think he, uh, kind of necessarily is an asshole. I think he, I think he reads asshole like super, you know, upscale, high status asshole. I think that's who he actually was. And that's really, that's really who he's playing in this film. And an eyes wide shut. It's like that kind of thing, you know? And also, I, know. You know, I think I re- it's the, I think it's the actor's respect for directors. I don't know that he was an asshole, but he is someone who very clearly got what he wanted out of people. And that's what comes across on screen. Yes. He's got, he's got a, a rich dad kind of vibe sometimes. Like I, I just rewatched a Michael Clayton recently. Like really rich dad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Not, you know, yes. Yeah. Like rich dad um, to adult children. So my number four is Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, a great movie. Uh, he's great in it. Mm-hmm. I I would argue that's the same year as Pulp Fiction. Am I am I crazy? It's ninety four. Uh, right? That's the no. Die Hard was ninety five. So it's okay, yeah, so so ninety four. Eight 95. months later, right? Those were it's that one two punch. I think for most people that sort, and I think I include myself in it. Where I, where this was the like the Sam Jackson moment, right? Like this was the moment when everyone was like, "You got to put this guy in everything," uh, and the energy he has in Die Hard with a Vengeance is just so funny. He plays so well off of Bruce. It's just, I, I don't know. It's, it is, it's not my favorite Die Hard. It's my second favorite Die Hard. I know that Kenny, I think this is your favorite Die Hard film, if I'm not mistaken. Am I crazy? In I think this is my favorite action film. So it's you higher on the Hard list. Vengeance. 
It's higher on the list. I think it is my favorite action film full stop. So wow. I need to rewatch it because I, I have not seen it in a very long time. Um, I'm sure I would uh, agree with you. I love it. That's I mean, four. nothing against the first Die Hard, which yeah. I'm fucking crazy about. Sure. You know, don't like I hope that doesn't seem like I'm sitting here shitting on the first Die Hard the way I shit on Raiders of the, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But which is insane. Um, but it's it's uh no, they, I mean, Die Hard's like a top five action film for me. Yeah, this is higher on my list, needless to say. My number four is my... So with a guy like Sam Jackson, like, you know, he was coming up right in that sweet spot for me where I was seeing every single movie. And he was in a lot of weird movies and a lot of different movies. And it, a movie that I saw at least 20 times and I love and has been very much forgotten history, but I think so much better than people remember is The Great White Hype. Um, crazy no, about I've forgotten that one completely. Yeah, you're right. I really love that film. I think Sam Jackson is amazing in the film, completely understanding that Don King Bolt is a creature worthy of satire, but also a very serious guy. And God fucking knows how he has stayed on top of the game that he stayed on top of for 25 years. But he, Samuel Jackson does a thing in that movie where at no point, despite being, despite seeming through the whole movie like he's a step behind, is always a step ahead. He knows more than everybody else in that film. I think he is brilliant. I think the film is fantastic. That's a film that literally will never get made again. Um, and that's a huge, and not just because of racial issues, a sports comedy um, with that kind of cast. And that kind of message, which is essentially it's all fucking broken. Don't even try. Um, is amazing. So I, I've never seen it, but uh, I, I I trust you implicitly. Good flick. Um, Goldblum's uh, amazing he's too. Great in it. Yeah. Yeah. Goldblum's amazing. Peter Berg is amazing. David Wayans is fantastic. Like really, everybody's playing the lead. Truly, the the least. Uh, the most vulnerable version of themselves in a weird way, like the least, the least self-conscious version. David Wayans is this fighter who gets fat throughout the film. He, Peter Berg is like a dummy throughout the film who's being, you know, you know, kind of led around by his neck. Jeff Goldblum, you know, thinks he's in charge of the whole movie and turns out he's in charge of nothing. It's wonderful. Sounds great. Uh, yeah. What's what's your what's your four, Norm? Um. I'm looking at my list, which again, didn't organize uh, my fault. Um, I think the long kiss good night. I think there's another movie where Samuel Jackson just exists to subvert the character he's playing from beginning to end. And it is so much fun to watch him. Like he's the, he's the Daffy duck in the movie. He's the one who's constantly getting in his own way. He, he has clear goals and he fucks up everything in his path. And it's so much fun to watch him be bad at his job while you also have Gina Davis discovering how good she is at her job because she's an assassin with amnesia and all this stuff is going on. And somehow the two of them find this buddy comedy vibe where they can't, they clearly cannot stand the other, but they respect their skill sets and we watch her escalate and prove herself over and over again while he just keeps like basically stabbing himself in the leg with his own ambition and it plays it plays every time i i love this movie it's my number three um i i really i mean listen i'm i'm a shane black fan uh to a certain degree the movies of his that i love i really love mm -hmm. um and i do think that this is a kind of pretty woefully underseen Shane Black movie. Um, That's you know, true. It was, it was a movie when 
Uh, it was an attempt by Rennie Harlan and Gina Davis, who at the time were still together, to try to rebound off of uh, Cutthroat Island, which was obviously a debacle. Um, and I think that this movie was sunk by that movie in a lot of ways. I think that it just people kept making the associations when they're obviously drastically dissimilar films. Yeah, and um, New Line did just didn't get behind it. They didn't yeah, know how to just, sell it. They didn't sell the comedy. They didn't sell the spirit. Yes. They just went for explosions in the trailer, it's, and it just—it's a bummer. But it's—he's great in it. They have a great vibe off. Of each other it's not two people you would imagine in a movie working and it totally works um that's my three what's what's your three kenny well i i long because goodbye real fast i watched it recently within the last year maybe the last six months even and i like it i don't like it as much as you guys i think it's a i think it's a sturdy action film um and i as think canadians we have to love anything that tries to blow up niagara falls right <laughs> and i and i i really love gina davis in it uh and i love him in it too i think they have a really good uh they have this really good chemistry um but it doesn't it didn't stick in my brain and the reason i'm picking the number three movie is for whatever reason i've never forgotten it and i really you know really yeah. love it it's the negotiator i think it's a really really great 90s action film uh you know kevin's basic and rotten hell but um the 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 two of them at this moment did feel like you know kind of two titans who uh, could go toe-to-toe at this one moment in time. They did go toe-to-toe. I like the way they found each other, you know, over the course of the movie. Um, and I, I, I also really love that 90s thing of um, someone kind of, you know, commits a horrible crime, but for the right reasons and kind of, you know, a sympathetic cop, like lets him get away with it at the end. It's awesome. I, I really, I really miss that thing T- today. You, he would go to jail. Like he, he might be right, but you'd still go to jail. And I don't think, you know, that is nearly as fun as I'm uncovering a giant conspiracy and I have to do something crazy, like take all these hostages in this building. Um, it's good. It's a, just a really great movie. I think it's F. Gary Gray. It's a, a really great, uh, great 90s action movie. It, it, actually, yeah. it really is. It really it's is. It's my number three as well. Actually, oh, nice. Because it is just that sweet spot of understanding that, once again, like it's a personality-driven, dialogue-driven thriller. And it's shot beautifully. And it's glossy. It's something new with the high concept that is okay. old. And it was like, yeah, you're right. Kevin Spacey in this is a huge problem, but there was that point in time where Kevin Spacey and Samuel L. Jackson were probably the two best character actors available. Yeah. And they were both making meals of these monologues and speeches and these twitchy things that they get to do. And they're, they're playing opposite of each other. So it's always interesting. And I just, I remember the, the complete commitment that, Jackson has in his opening sequence talking about the dog to the guy on the other side of the door and like, mm-hmm. oh, I had a dog and the dog would always be happy to see me. And his eyes are dead because he's done this a hundred times and it's the speech he always uses. And right away, you're just like, oh, this is going to be clever. It's not just going to be fun. Yeah. It's going to be smart about how it does it. And he is such a huge part of that. Yeah. Was I agree with that wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. I, uh, um, so my two, I mean, my, my number two is Jackie Brown. Um, I, I think that, um, I think he's great in it. I think it's a, um, it's an attempt for him to, it's, it's the most sort of, uh, Sam Jackson being evil, like that there's this very dark, evil criminal murderer that exists there. Um, 
underneath the oh shucks we all love samuel jackson thing and that needle they're trying to thread i think they do really really well um I think it's, I mean, it's one of my favorite Tarantino films. We're going to do uh, Inglorious Bastards soon. So we'll, we'll do our, our a deep dive into Tarantino on the Patreon. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think it's a great Samuel Jackson performance that is deceptively quote unquote simple. I think there's a lot going on in it, but that, that's my number two. I haven't seen Jackie Brown in a very long time. And uh, otherwise, I mean, I didn't think I could talk about it. Still don't think I could talk about it, which means okay. I might, li- I might watch, watch it before we do Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Remember loving it. I remember loving him. And uh, I almost put it on my list anyway. And just being like, I think this is supposed to be here, but um, I didn't. I'll go to my number two. Okay. What's your two? Dire with the mentions. Best action movie ever made. Debbie, <laughs> um, I mean, just specifically uh, Sam Jackson's take on a action hero next to John McClane after there has been a succession of black sidekicks in the first two diehards who were essentially guys on a phone, right? Like in the first two movies, they're just guys on a phone who's just kind of talking him through. And Samuel Jackson riding side saddle with um, Bruce Willis and having his own you know, action moments, but he's not John McClane. He's not as savvy, but he definitely has you know, enough to, to be his, you know, be Bruce Willis. Is, is Bruce Willis is like, like, you know, role dog. They're partners, right? They're, like they're, they're, yeah. They're, well, they're, they're partners in a, in a, in a wild west kind of sense, right? Less like police partners, more like, like you're the guy who's going on this mission with me because you're the guy who was there in that moment. And over the course of the film, they really go from like, it's not that it's not that it's a it's a you know opposites attract thing it's not like they're ever like you know playing you know lethal weapon it's really it's really like two guys who are like all right we're not gonna do this bullshit thing where we don't respect each other right we're gonna do this thing where we have a massive problem here you are my partner let's go to it what happens over the course of the movies these guys become friends which i love like at the end of the movie, they are laughing about Bruce Willis's marriage. Like they become <laughs> friends. It's a, like I believe that these two guys are friends in real life. It's funny because you think of Pulp Fiction, they they don't share the fucking they don't share a scene together, right? So there is this idea that like, oh yeah, there's a second movie together. No, this is the first time these two are together, and they are they they just seem like best buddies, and they, they come from completely together again. Roles. Am I crazy? Do they work together again? Uh, not they that I can so, think of. They have a great energy. They have an incredible energy. chemistry. I mean, we've talked about Bruce Willis before. He had, can have chemistry with a broom. Samuel Jackson also can have chemistry with a broom. I think, right. and right. they're both you know they're 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 super cool guys. Have they ever worked together? Unbreakable guys. Oh, sorry. Unbreakable too. Unbreakable and 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 of course and of course glass. Sorry glass. about that. Talk, yes. We don't speak about glass. But uh, also, uh, they had worked together before, kind of, sort of, in National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon, right? Which oh Willis God. has oh, that he, stupid camera. Oh, he starred in it with Emilio Estevez. Yeah. yeah. And That's so weird. Has one Sorry, guys. I, at least, at, at least I'm not the one who put entirely. Unbreakable on my five, Phil, and didn't know oh, that. Yes, I did. No, I'm, I'm well, So tell I me, tell me Norm, why do you like it so much? I like it because. Shyamalan's not tapped out yet on gimmicks. Like we still don't know what he might do. Someone hasn't uh, seen old. Oh, I've seen it. I like uh, it. old is great. 
Uh, anyway, but continue. continue. You know what? Old is really compelling right up until he does the thing he always does now, which is the, the need to explain it and show how clever he is. And it's like, I totally agree, Norm. As soon as you, agree, soon I'm, as you I'm get off the beach, Hard which did not agree. happen in the graphic novel, his, it's like, here. well, why would people keep going to this beach? And the point is, Hard it's agree. a metaphor for generation changing and growing and leaving your children behind without you. You don't need anything to explain it. And he's like, well, we're going to spend 20 minutes on this. And also, we're going we to let these two 50-year-old children run around the world now without acknowledging how incredibly cruel that is. It doesn't. It you, you, you don't need to acknowledge how incredibly cruel it is. If you just end this movie on the fucking helicopter, you'll leave thinking about that. But this ridiculous lab stuff is like, yeah, it's so God, dumb. it's like the red violin. It's like you've told me too much. You've demystified this entire premise, which was Awesome. I think old is is uh one well, an hour and twenty minutes of a fucking masterpiece and twenty minutes of dude. Yeah. Without on. the explanation, the only thing that doesn't work in old is the fact that M. Night Shyamalan thinks a rapper would be named mid sized sedan. No, that was hilarious. That was hilarious. I like that. So, <laughs> so unbreakable. Sedan. Unbreakable, though, was made at a time when he hadn't become M. Night Shyamalan, right? Like he he didn't sure. base his entire world on his entire identity and reputation on being the twist man and the man who does the magic and, and tricks people. Unbreakable doesn't have a twist. Like the twist of Unbreakable is that you're watching a comic book, yep. which it kind of says at the very beginning anyway. And what if there was a, like what if Ingmar Bergman made a movie about Superman and Lex Luthor? Like that's what this is. And it's incredibly self-conscious, but it's it does it in a way that somehow works and that lets Willis and Jackson meet each other as genre characters, as archetypes, but also as people. And the idea that, that David Dunn, that the character Willis is playing is not that bright and just doesn't know he has superpowers because he's never thought about it at all. That is so perfectly contrasted with what Samuel Jackson is doing anyway. Like Samuel Jackson's whole deal at that point is being the smartest guy in the room, the guy who's 10 steps ahead of everybody else, who is frustrated that no one else can keep up with him. And so by saddling him with someone who is actually dense, Mm -hmm. like literally and metaphorically and intellectually is brilliant because Mr. Glass is delicate and David Dunn is thick. And that contrast is so interesting because you're watching a smart man try to teach a stupid man to be better Mm -hmm. for his own reasons, which is as close as the movie comes to a twist. But Jackson gets to play the honesty of his frustration because he can't believe that this is his nemesis, that this is his arch enemy. And when it's finally revealed that he was behind everything, and it is that that Shyamalan-y way where he doesn't trust us to just get it through dialogue and performance, he has to show us. But when he gets there, somehow we are still on on Mr. Glass's side because he's so goddamn frustrated that he has to explain himself. It's a great performance. I'm wrong. You're right. It's also just Sam Jackson's look in that movie mm. with oh, that he's fucking the hair and that just yeah. he, he's he's yeah. just I don't know I I yeah I, I no 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 I think you really just convinced me I I think I, I really do I think like well I you know what it was in I think that movie came out like ninety eight and. 2000. 2000 okay yeah, and right after like, you, no no you're right year you, after, you're right because six senses like months months after six cents and you know like like everybody I I just kind August, of November I I. I was knocked on my ass by Sixth Sense and would have followed End Night anywhere in the world. Sure. And I think there was a certain sense of you're not delivering what you promised, but really I think what it was, was I had no familiarity 
with the language of comic books. None. Um, outside of what you learn in the first five minutes of the film. You know, a little bit from the Batman movies, but like really none. You know, like enough. They, they, they were more on the Marvel tip, right? So really like none. So I didn't really understand. It didn't feel like a reveal to me at the end or not even a reveal. It didn't feel in any way like puzzle pieces falling into place. It felt like so empty, so deeply empty because it didn't conform to my understanding of heroes and villains uh, in a cinematic only context, sure. um, not in this, you know, 50 year serialized history context where, you know, for every, you know, every villain, there is a, a hero and every action is an opposite reaction. All right, I'm guessing we all have the same. Yeah, number one. I think we have the same number. One. <laughs> I, think we it's not all Pulp Fiction. Um, yeah. I mean, he's obviously great in it. Uh, he also has one of the best fucking Oscar reactions ever in terms of not getting it. He's so clearly, literally, like you see him swear. <laughs> it was it was Mar it was Marlando, right? Yeah, it's it unfortunate. It's unfortunate it went to That's a good performance. Thing, it would have right. so much. It would have been so much more enjoyable if it was like you know. Michael Anyone, Caine. Uh, Michael Caine is exactly what I was thinking. Inside our <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's. I mean, listen. It's. It's obviously a uh, beyond iconic performance. It. It. You know, stratospheric in in terms of just a star is born. Um, just an amazing thing. He's obviously in numerous films prior to it where he is fantastic. But like, it's just. It's. It's. It's an unbelievable. It's almost hilarious the way he talks about it now. He's like. Oh, I do have an Oscar. I won for Pulp Fiction. Like, yeah, like, I, mean, like, like I don't know. I don't know if you guys like were there, but like, no, I won. Like, that's what happened. It's great. I have not seen that, but that's amazing. Like, he's, there's some he, quantum leap episode he, where that's the goal. He, it's not like he believe. It's not like it's not like he believes yeah. he has an Oscar, but it's the right. way he talks about it. He's like, yeah, come he's on. Like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, he's like, he's like, he's like, I don't have the trophy, but like, come on. Like, I mean, we all know it should have happened, and yeah. like. It, again, it is it is unfortunate that it's Martin Landau, someone no one wants yeah. to take an Oscar from. But but and in a great performance, like and, a worthy performance. And it wasn't like the kind of it wasn't like fucking you know uh, Lauren Bacall in the Mirror House Two Faces where it was a surprise at the end. Right. Like no, we all knew Landau was going to win. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Um, I I want to ask you a question, Norm. Um, about you've been on our podcast for three films: In Dreams, True Crime, Red Violin. What's the best film? Wait, haven't I done another one? There must have been. Maybe I, just, I just those three. I, that can't be right. I did one way, way back, didn't I? In Dreams. That was like last year. No, 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 no. Has no. it been that long? Oh, my God. <laughs> in time has, has no been, meaning. Has been a beat. Uh, in Dreams was, wow. uh, was in February. No, it was in late 2019. Oh, was my God. Really? Oh my God. I couldn't, in my head, there was one I did before the pandemic. I guess that was it. Yeah. Um, okay. So why do you do this to me is my question to you, but go on. <laughs> I'm just, it's, there are three very, very, very different films. And I'm curious as to which one you like the most. The good one. Three. Right. What's the, what's the good one? I'm not going to say, I want to hear what Norman has to say. Oh, wow. I mean, they're all incredibly flawed films. <laughs> I think. Really I, I think the one that I, the one that I think about more often than not is probably in dreams just because it is trying for something so bizarre and it almost gets there. Like, it's not like I go back to it and revisit it constantly, but it sure. is the kind of film that you can say, like, if you look at this thing, this was a thing that tried sure. and almost and, and it's got so much going on. And I and I just love 
Neil Jordan as a filmmaker that sure. I find his failures it's, more interesting than other people's successes. So Norm, I, I, I happen to have in front of me your rankings for both injuries and true crime. If you're oh, go on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. In 99, you gave in dreams a 60. You before the podcast, you gave it a 45 and after a 40. In 99, you gave true crimes a 40 before the podcast, also a 45 and after the podcast, a 55. And true crime is the good one, in my opinion. Well, here's the thing about true crime. And first of all, I want to say I agree with you in terms of and Kenny, I think you agree with me, too. Uh, We all love a swing in dreams is the love a swing. Oh, yeah. In dreams is a swing. Uh, it's it's a it's a bit of a whiff, but it's a big swing uh, with some really weird stuff going on in it that I kind of would agree with you. It's the one that I will think about the most of the three of them. True crime, however, does have a scene <laughs> with Clint Eastwood and uh, Dennis Leary and James Woods. Uh, yeah. And and that scene will go down in my brain as one of the most insane scenes of 1999. <laughs> It's true. There's nothing in In Dreams that comes close to what happens in true crime. I, 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 I just want to quickly give you my uh, my top yeah. five movies uh, yeah, sorry, Samuel Jackson has ever appeared in. Yes. Because we did five top five movies, I think, where Samuel Jackson has a big role. Correct. But the top five movies Samuel Jackson has ever has appeared in. I'm going to... Uh, Pulp Fiction's number five on okay. this list. Okay. Oh, so we're including the ones he's in. Four. That we've already... Sure anything he's okay. been in. But I think there are four better films he's been in. Correct. Than this, uh, I think I know one of them. Inglorious Bastards is one of them. A VO. Yeah. Sure. Well, he's been in it. Okay. <laughs> true, true romance is one of them. Yeah. Goodfellas is one of them. Yeah, you know, arguably yes. Goodfellas. And do the right thing is one of them. Do the right thing is the one. That's the also VO, by the way. But I mean, you well, do no, see him there. there. Oh no, he's you see him. You no, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. You see him in the booth. You're right. Um. So it's kind of a, and most of those films, I think every one of those films, except for Glorious Bastards, uh, used him before he got really famous um, right. and used him before, you know, he really kind of had his breakout in Jungle Fever. Jungle Fever was when people were like, whoa, who the yeah. fuck is this motherfucker? Yeah. But uh, before then, he really was just a reliable hand for our finest filmmakers in a yeah. lot of ways. And uh, and I think it's really interesting the way he kind of added he was kind of an added spice. And this goes beyond just these movies. I mean, I'd see if love he was in for a scene. Correct. Correct. So, you know, so many incredible films and filmmakers you kind of were like, love this guy. Got to figure out how got to figure out how some way. Well, to use like, I mean, and I he's, imagine he's also an incredible hang. People just oh, love sure. this guy for sure. I mean, his his role in Goodfellas is incredibly important to the incredibly the important. Yes. Um, and, you know, he he does. He pops in the way that when you watch Goodfellas, you're like, yeah, Sam Jackson. But it's he's not, you know, I mean, like he doesn't have a ton to do in it. But, um, you know, his death is pretty uh, is also pretty upset. Super consequential. Right? Yeah. Super consequential. Just happy so- to see him in everything. Like, he's in Coming to America. I just Coming to, to America. Yeah, he is. Um, but every time you see him and of course, he shows up in the dream sequence in Exorcist 3, which someone just pointed out a couple of weeks ago somewhere. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's right. Him and Patrick Ewing. He's just, Somehow. The, guy, the guy works. He worked <laughs> for a long time and then he became a star and he works even more somehow uh he's just he's he's and you know kenny you mentioned this before we got on mike it's been in a million marvel movies obviously now which is where you know that's that's kind of whatever he's got his own show now for marvel that's coming out i guess sometime next year um, you yeah, had to I pick mean, one marvel movie that he was in name soldier okay yeah that's the one yeah. winter so, soldier is the one where he gets the most time to interact with people yeah 
uh, even if it's in a hospital bed, and he's just always, always in charge of stuff. It's and you like, get to Nick... mourn his death for a, for a beat. Well, the uh, other yeah. one, and I he was... goes down fighting, which is great too. Like he is always in charge mm-hmm. of the scene, even when he's losing. He is the guy who you watch in that shot. It's a great call. The the what I was thinking, uh, not the best Marvel movie, but I love him is Captain America, um, where it's a. Not Captain America, Captain Captain, Marvel, excuse me, Captain Marvel, where it's a set where we're in for a lot of the movie. It's a two hander and uh, he plays the and he plays the 90s version with two eyes. So it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I and another, you know, where did this chemistry come from? It's, you know, him and Brie Larson have incredible chemistry in that. So, okay, Uh, so I love Sam. See you on the flip side, Sam. uh, I want to get your thoughts on next week, which is a big one. Um, we are uh, doing Being John Malkovich. Ever hear of it? Uh, with How Mark have you not Harris, done that before? Mark we, Harris we, and Adam B. Very. We saved it on uh, purpose. We saved it on purpose. Um, you know, obviously a great film, great guests. Um, Kenny gets to, I think, probably nerd out maybe the most he's he's nerded out for a guest fan. I fanboy fan, out. Fan, I, I really, out. I really uh, adore. <laughs> Mark Harris. Now that we know him, I adore him even more. But uh, just, it's just, just a you know a massive influence on my life. So yeah. I'm thrilled to have him. He was he was amazing. But Norm, I'm th- I'm curious as to your thoughts on being John Malkovich back in '99. How you think it? I don't know when you've watched it recently, but uh, just to wrap up, just are cu- curious on that. Oh, um, when did I last see it? Not too long ago, maybe three or four years ago. I think whenever the Criterion Blu-ray came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my last shot at it. I, I do. I think it's one of those movies where you get to see an entire uh, director's entire filmography laid out in front of you, even though none of the movies he has since made are like that. Mm-hmm. But all of Spike Jones's interests and all of his fixations, like he is kind of, I hate saying phrases like this because it sounds so pompous, but he is like the poet of American alienation and nobody gives him credit for it. All of his movies are about how You're I totally see right, these characters are. And like when the where the wild things are, which everybody forgets he made, is just this crushing I cried from like three minutes in for the whole thing about this sad child who can't connect and, and has to create a wonderland in his head. And and it finds the thing in Sendak's book that is so tragic, which is that Max can never go back to this thing, that he has this wonderful time and it can't go and he can't return. And here it's like, well, this wonderful time is driven entirely by his alien, his isolation from his family and the fact that his marriage, his, his parents' marriage is coming apart. Like so many movies this year, for some reason, are movies made by artists uh, like the Fablemans, the Spielberg film, which is about uh, what it feels like to watch your parents' marriage deteriorate, know that there's nothing you can do and understand that your entire future is tied to what their choices are and that you have no power. Wow. And it's like James Gray's Armageddon time is about that sort of. <laughs> and there's five or six other movies that have, that played at TIFF or that screened in the summer. And they're all about this. And I think what like Spielberg's excuse was that he wrote this script now because suddenly the pandemic gave him time to think about mortality. And he said, like, if I'm going to die of a plague, I want to leave this behind. I don't want to go without telling the story. And that's where it came from. And I think the fact that we've all had this collective window of time to just sit with ourselves and our thoughts mm-hmm. has somehow spurred this, but Jones is doing it. 20, like, 30 years. Yeah. 20 something decade years. before. Yeah. What was it? 2009. But it was, yeah. but it's about how, it's about what being John Malkovich is about. It's about how you can't choose your parents. It's about how you can't choose your reality. All the best thing you can do is move forward with what you have and how in being John Malkovich, nobody does that. Like 
everyone is trapped and stuck and alone and all they have to do is talk to each other. And when they finally do, it doesn't solve anything because they're using someone else's body to do it. Like it's just, it's all in there. And her has a similar scene and everything Jones does is tied up in this movie. And it feels like, you know, we, you've, you've talked about this on the podcast. I don't think I've had, I've had the opportunity before, but 99 is that year where you get to see all these incredible wild talents emerging in the fall. Um, You've got, like starting with Shyamalan, I suppose, in, in August, but then it trickles down. You get Spike Jones, and you get uh, David O. Russell making Three Kings, and you get Anderson making Magnolia, and these all feel like these mission statements from filmmakers. Yeah. Who, and Fight Club 2 is one Fight of those, Club, yeah. where it's just, and Brushmore, which, you know, admittedly is a 98 film, but it yeah. came out in 99. Mm-hmm. But you just get this explosion of the new American cinema, and the future is there. Yeah, Sofia Coppola, like that's yeah. so yeah. much of, so yeah. much of what, and, and totally. it goes beyond, 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 but so much of what we're talking about well, is that. the year, right? Yeah. Well, in yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. We, we mostly picked it because we knew that, uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> what was I going to say? We knew Brian Rafter was running a book about it. Yeah. But mm-hmm. aside from that. Um, I, I will say, though, you know, we talk about this on the episode, you know, it, being John Malkovich being sort of the quintessential 99 film because it oh, yeah. really packs in all of the themes that we're talking about across the year, really in one film. Um, and it's just, it's such a special movie. It's a really special episode. Um, I, you know, I, I, it was a joy to get to talk to Mark and Adam about it. Um, but, uh, but this has been a pleasure. Norm, yeah, Norm. Always. Thank you no, so much for thank you, you for, thank you so much for playing the red violin with us. Yeah, thank you. Oh, for, somebody had to, and everyone else. I know someone had to play it, and and we're thrilled that it was it's, you. And yes. honestly, truly, uh, I I was I didn't know how this episode was going to go just because I know that the movie's kind of Norm and I kind of discussed it. Movies, obviously, as we've discussed, a little bit dull. This was a great episode, though. Oh, yeah. It really, did, I mean, it's more interesting than the movie uh, by 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 leaps and bounds, and um, shorter. And short. I was going to say the same thing. (laughs) But uh, thank you so, so much, Norman. And uh, we can't wait to to hopefully have you back in the future. My pleasure. And yeah, I'll I'll be back anytime. I actually have more time these days. Take care, Norman. Bye, guys. See you guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.